the flood is, is just as much a demonstration of God's justice as it is his mercy and deliverance. Welcome to Working with the Word, a hopefully once again weekly podcast designed to equip you with the skills and confidence for deeper daily Bible study. I'm Jeff O'Rear. And I'm Emerson Brown. Thank you for tuning in to the 74th episode of Working with the Word. It's been a pretty quiet 2022 from us at Working with the Word, only having released 13 episodes so far this year. We talked a little bit about in our last episode, which was published on June 1st, about all of that, why that's kind of been happening. But now that summer is pretty much over, at least our summer breaks, we're praying for a little bit more regularity and consistency from this program moving forward for the rest of the year. If you're one of our regular listeners, we welcome you back to joining our time together. If you're new to the program and just jumping in, we welcome you as well. Whoever you are, wherever you are, we are glad to have opportunities to be working in the Word together with you all once again. We continue to pray this program will be encouraging and helpful for you all. So since it's been a minute, we felt that it might be hard for us to jump back into the study of John that we're going through at the moment. So we decided to warm back up with a review of one of our tools that we've been using for Bible study, the steps of observation, interpretation, and application. We also want to use an example of how to use that by talking about Noah from Genesis chapters 6 through 9 today. So if you're new to the show or you just need a quick refresher, remember that each of these steps, observation, interpretation, application, is asking a different question about what we're reading. Specifically, observation asks, what does the text say? Interpretation is, what does the text mean? And finally, most importantly, apply is, how does it apply? And our Bible study isn't over until we've asked that last question and answered how this applies to us today. So we always encourage you to read the text for yourself before listening to us talk about it. So if you want to pause right here, take a moment to read or listen to Genesis chapters 6 through 9, that's what we're going to be talking about today. So let's get started with some simple observations. Jeff and I each have a couple of observations that, that we noticed. Jeff, what, what did you notice, first of all? Well, one of my observations has to deal with time markings that we see throughout these chapters. You think about how many things have happened between Genesis 1 through Genesis 5 that we have no specific time markings for besides following the genealogy that's listed in Genesis chapter 5. There's no... Adam and Eve were in the garden for this long. I guess we have the days of creation. You have individual days for that. And you have how long people lived and how old they were whenever they had children. But beyond that, there's not really any specifics given for this is the time of year or what year it was when Cain killed Abel. This is the year, how long they lived in the garden before they were kicked out of the garden, those kinds of things. But even going beyond Genesis chapter 9, we aren't given specific time references when things take place. We are at times given some of those, but not often given those specific time references. Sometimes we're given the age of someone when an event took place, or sometimes we're given the exact month or day when a feast or a festival would be happening among the people of Israel. And if those details were absolutely vital to our belief, God would have provided them constantly throughout the pages of Scripture. But it seems we're only given time information when relevant or important to the story that's being told. So, for example, in Genesis chapter 7 and Genesis chapter 8, we're given lots of time information. And I don't think it's necessarily meant to be like this is some 
big deal for big events moving forward other than this helps us to see the scope of the story and what's going on within mm-hmm. the story. Genesis chapter 7 and verse 11 stands out to me as one of those significant timestamps. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. There are other time references in chapter 7, like verse 4, verse 6, verse 12, verse 17, verse 24. In chapter 8, you have verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, verse 10, verse 12. These observations here, we're just simply mentioning what the text says. We're trying to do as little interpretation right now as possible. So we're just mm-hmm. throwing out where those things take place. In Genesis chapter 8, verse 13 and verse 14, we see in the 601st year, in the first month and the first day of the month, the waters were dried off of the earth, And Noah removed the covering of the ark, and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Simply, we notice from these time markings the fact that it tells us when things took place. We can know exactly how long Noah was on the ark. He was on there for a year and ten days. It's interesting, maybe just, again, considering how little of that kind of information we've seen before this story, but that stands out to us as maybe in our observation phase we could look for those kind of details. That's one thing we might observe from this text. Emerson, what's something you observed from Genesis 6 through 9? One of the first things that I noticed is just how much creation language is used to tell the story of the flood. You mentioned the things that happened, all the things that happened between creation and now. And so from Genesis chapter 5, we learned that it's been several thousand years since creation. But if we're reading straight through from creation to the flood, we will notice that the flood account Uh, really isn't that far conceptually from the creation account. And there are several phrases and ideas that jump out as as parallels. Three times we're told that God is going to wipe out everything that has the, and here's the phrase, the breath of life in chapter 6, verse 17, chapter 7, verse 15, and chapter 7, verse 22. And remember in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, God breathed into Adam the breath of life. And so that idea of the breath of life is parallel. Another idea that's parallel is when God talks about the animals, he refers to them as birds, livestock, crawling animals, according to their kinds. When, when God's telling Noah, you know, the animals are going to come to you according to their kinds, male and female. That idea is also borrowed from Genesis chapter 1, when God made, created the animals and even the plants after their kinds to reproduce. In Genesis chapter 9, after the flood, God emphasizes that murder is wrong and that it deserves punishment because he made humans in his image. That's Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. That's a really obvious standout parallel to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, when God made male and female in his image. And then Mm -hmm. one more after the flood in Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 and 7, God blesses Noah and he tells him and his wife, be fruitful and multiply. And that's exactly what God told Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. He blessed them and gave them this honor to be fruitful and multiply. And so there's there's so many of these phrases and ideas that kind of jump out as parallel to the creation language. And as you mentioned, we're not we're trying to just kind of lay those observations out and let you think about them. We can spend a lot of more time talking about interpreting these things, but we're not going to spend as much time on, on that one. Uh, so what's another observation that you noticed? Just thinking about who we might think of as the main human character of these chapters, Noah, just some things about him quickly as we're maybe wanting to gather some information about who this guy is and what we know about him. 
We know a little bit about his family life, as we see that in verse 18 of chapter 6. He's married, so you've got Noah, and we'll call her Mrs. Noah. <laughs> he has three sons who's are named, or who are named, other points through the story. But verse 18 just mentions that he has sons, and his sons have wives. So you have a total of eight people here, and the family that's really emphasized or talked about. It's interesting to me that when we observe this text, we only see three verses where Noah actually speaks, as opposed to people like David or Moses or Abraham or Jesus or Peter or Paul. Other Bible characters sometimes get a lot more vocal time, but Noah's just three verses in chapter 9, verse 25 and verse 27 actually talks. Some important things we want to read right now are some things about Noah's character that's talked about in Genesis chapter 6, verse 8. We see Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It goes on in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9 to say, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and Noah walked with God. There's some amazing things to say about Noah, especially compared to some things we know about the rest of mankind in these days. And then finally, I noticed Noah's obedience here. The phrase, Noah did all that God commanded him, either that exact phrase or some implications or rewardings of that phrase or even just the things that Noah does are showing that. You see it in verse 22 of chapter 6. You see it in chapter 7, verse 5, verse 9, verse 16, as well as kind of implication of God tells Noah to get off the ark. And so Noah does get off of the ark. He waits till God actually commands him to go and then he gets off. He follows that command in chapter 8 and verse 18. We're seeing a man of great character, great faith. We're seeing a man and describing some of his family, but just some of those observations about Noah stand out to me, and we'll want to dig at, into that more in our interpretation here in this particular episode in just a second. But what about you? Is there any other observations we want to talk about on a little bit bigger level before we move on to interpretation? Yeah, one more. So you mentioned that the main human character is Noah, I think that kind of implies that the main divine character, obviously, is God. He's front and center. Mm -hmm. And this is not something that I've noticed really even before we talked about it, but God's feelings and actions are front and center, even more than what Noah does, even in, in his obedience. And specifically, what God is doing is he's seeing wickedness and then deciding and speaking accordingly. A couple of examples of that. In chapter 6, verses 5 through 7, I want to read this. This is emphasizing that the reason why God brings the flood. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. So God sees and God feels deep grief and that leads him to speak about what he's decided to do. Another example of that is in chapter 6 verses 12 through 13. It says, God looked on the earth and behold it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. So God, again, sees something. In this case, he sees the earth's corruption, but he also sees Noah's faithfulness. And he showed favor to him, and that leads him to speak. He says to Noah, I'm going to save you. And so again, the point is that God sees, 
he decides, and then he speaks accordingly. Mm -hmm. And then through the rest of the account, we see God acting before, during, and after the flood. So a few examples of this, the text emphasizes that God commanded Noah to enter the ark in chapter 7, verse 1. That God brought the rain in chapter 7, verse 4. God shut the door after Noah and the animals were in, in chapter 7, verse 16. In, in chapter 8, verse 1, God remembered Noah, and then he caused a wind to subdue the waters. And then chapter 8 and verse 15, Noah didn't exit the ark until God commanded him to do that. In chapter 9, verse 1, God blessed Noah. In chapter 9, verse 8, God establishes a covenant with Noah. And so again, just emphasizing the point that God is the one who is acting here. God is the one who is bringing this upon the earth in response to what man has done to corrupt their way, and again, in response to what Noah has done in obedience um, to, to God. So again, you see just God's feelings and actions being emphasized in, in all of this. And we'll talk about that in, in our interpretation section as well. But before we, before we get to that point, thinking about what that means, let, let's move into our, our first interpretation. What, what does all of this mean? And Jeff, you're going you're gonna to talk about Noah and what we learn from him, what the text is telling us about Noah specifically. Right. Now, I mean, there are lots of other things you could observe or that you will observe as you look at this text. I mean, you could do some things like we talked about long, long ago and I guess what feels like a galaxy far, far away at times. Whenever we talked about <laughs> observation, look for repeated words or contrasts and comparisons or just strange and unusual things. I think we'll talk, you mentioned a covenant a second ago. You see the word covenant being used a lot within a short period of time in chapter 9. Uh, you see all the references of the animals, and you see the difference between people who are saved as a people who are destroyed or wiped out. There's people who are inside, people who are outside. All of that, more for you to observe on your own time as you're practicing some observation in this text as well. But speaking to that question of what does this mean, and that thought of what does it mean for what's going on in this particular story we're reading about. So looking at Noah, I think what we're seeing here is a living example about what it means to trust and obey. That's a little bit of kind of using our language from maybe a song that some of us are familiar with. But I think Noah is a perfect embodiment of what trust and obedience is here, that what we need to have, that type of faith and that type of obedience that Noah has. There are some, I've heard someone use the phrase recently, wonders that we might have. Some things that like, I wonder about for the flood story that we don't have definitive answers for. I wonder, was there ever rain before the flood? There are some things in Genesis chapter 2 that kind of imply that maybe there wasn't. And so that's kind of an often taken position about that. Whether that means that there was only ever mist that came up and down. There was no actual water cycle as far as rains falling from clouds. We don't know for certain. Uh, was there ever been... You've all it hadn't been a global flood. Had there ever been any kind of local flood before? Had there ever been water that had gone beyond its boundary? Kind of implication, it seems, when God set the boundaries of the seas and the rivers and things like that in creation, probably hadn't seen anything like this before. Mm -hmm. A wonder that's maybe kind of silly to think about. Did people ever swim? Like, did people ever actually <laughs> go in water? Did they travel in water? Did they ever try to cross rivers or did they just stay on land? Did people, had anyone ever even built a boat before? I mean, I imagine that if people had never seen rain, maybe they're somewhat building a permanent structure like a house, or they're at least building tents. But no one knows what to expect when God says he's going to destroy his creation with a flood 
and that Noah and that all who are with him are going to be safe in this wooden box. I mean, people just don't Mm -hmm. get that. And so when God explains to Noah what he's going to do and what he wants Noah to do in response to that, I imagine that Noah has a lot of wonders himself, a lot of maybe some questions. We're not given those things. That's kind of an, an assumption on my part, and I'll admit that and understand that. But Noah responds to all of that with great faith. Noah's faith is talked about later in the New Testament. Some of the places we see about the story of Noah and the life of Noah outside of Genesis chapter 6 through 9, the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 11 and verse 7, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. Noah had great faith, enough faith to go through the process of building this ark. However long it took, whatever it cost him material-wise or just in time-wise or energy or strength-wise, Noah saw that God said this is going to happen, and so I have every reason to trust that God is going to bring this to fruition. He's going to bring this destruction as well as he is going to save me if I'm in compliance with what he's told me to do. And so that faith leads him to at least try to warn others, it seems. Another passage about Noah outside of the Old Testament, we see in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, it's talking about how God can rightly judge people who are wicked, but also save those who are faithful to him. And within some of that context, 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, if he, that being God, did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. That phrase in there, a herald of righteousness, some versions I think translate as a preacher of righteousness. It seems that Noah was at least trying to warn other people and encourage them to repent because he had faith that while nothing like this had ever been seen before, that this was going to happen. And he at least was able to, at least in a sense, not pass that on to his family as in a sense that he forced them, but he instructed them, he encouraged them. I bet there was lots of conversations with Shem, Ham, and Japheth about this is why we're working on this ark right now. This is why we're not going to go off and play, go throw the pigskin or whatever they were doing in the days of Noah that maybe was at least been somewhat of a social and enjoyable activity event. But Noah and his sons and his family are going to get on that ark because of the faith that he has. And again, that faith prompts him to obedience. Noah did all that God commanded him. I think we could safely say that as in Noah did all that God commanded him exactly as God commanded him. So we're seeing a great example in here about what does all this mean when we look at the life of Noah. Noah is a man of faith. Noah is a man of obedience. I think those are some of the big things that we want to see about Noah within this story, about what the text is meaning or saying about him. But thinking about, again, the the non-human character, the main character of the whole Bible story about God, what are we interpreting about him from this story? What are we seeing the text mean to say about him? Yeah, so going off of some of our observations, like like you did with, with Noah, thinking about what the text says about him, what that means, doing the same thing with God, taking his actions and his feelings. And what I think this shows us is that God's actions show him to be a perfect judge and deliverer, kind of those two themes intertwined of judgment and deliverance. And God does all of that perfectly. One of the hardest things for us to understand about this is Genesis chapter 6, verse 6. It says, The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. That's the way the New American Standard reads. I think other translation says that God regretted making man on the earth. And I have a hard time wrapping my mind around what that means, because 
from our standpoint, it kind of sounds like God is saying, I made a mistake mm-hmm. or I wish I hadn't done this. I wish I hadn't created man, but I can't undo it now. I don't think that's what it means. From what we know about God in other passages, we know that God is omniscient. And so we know that he knew that this would be the case from the beginning whenever he created everything, but he chose to create mankind anyway. And at the end of chapter 9, we see that after the flood, sin continues, mm-hmm. even with Noah and, and his sons. And so the flood itself isn't a permanent fix to this problem of sin. And so I don't think as it's saying that God is regretting in the sense of, I made a mistake. I, I think the point is that God's heart is breaking and that his grief is unimaginable to us as humans and it's indescribable in, in human terms, mm-hmm. God is grieving over this. I think that's what's being emphasized here. And so we need to understand his judgment that comes through the flood in light of his love for his creation. He grieves because he loves what he made. People are separating themselves from his goodness. They're destroying all that he made for their enjoyment. Remember, In the beginning, he made everything good. He made everything right. And since Genesis chapter 3, it's just been going downhill from there. Well, that is affecting God. It's hurting him. And what he's saying here is that this has to stop. And so God, in his holiness, he decides to destroy every living thing in, in in an effort to stop this. And when we were preparing for this episode, we were reading the text together, and Jeff was reading Genesis chapter 7 aloud. And I like what he did with Genesis chapter 7, verses 21 and 22. When, we, when it gets to the part, it talks about everything perished. Every living thing perished. He stopped and he read that slowly because we need to understand the weight and the gravity of that. The point is that everything is dying because of sin, because of mankind's choice to rebel against God. Mm-hmm. And so we see God's judgment in light of his love for his creation Also, I want to quote my esteemed co-host here. He said, the judgments of God never go beyond what mankind deserves. I think that's really well said. What God is doing here is he's judging in a perfect way because he sees what mankind is doing to his creation and he has to stop it in his holiness and to preserve his own goodness. But having said that, we also need to understand this judgment in light of what comes after. Because it's not just about God's angry with sin and he has to stop it, but rather he has, he has something he's working toward even beyond that. He's intending to redeem, to rescue, and deliver. He has a greater purpose in mind. And so that's why he saves Noah, not just because he sees that he is faithful and he's walking with God. And he, he saves Noah not just for his family's sake, but I think he also saves Noah for his own sake. If you remember way back, and this is getting outside of the flood, but in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God said to the serpent that someone would come from woman's seed that would crush him, that would would undo him, undo his work. Mm -hmm. And that can't be fulfilled without mankind continuing to exist. And so God is doing this through Noah to be faithful to his promise and carry forward the promise of a universal deliverer. And so what he did through Noah was... He established a way for Noah to be saved. He communicated that very clearly to Noah and said, you need to do this. And Noah did it and he saved his family. And so we see at the end of that, that God preserves mankind, sinful mankind, 
Noah continues to sin. His children continue to sin. Just a few chapters later, we read about the Tower of Babel. (laughs) And so the problem is just going to continue. God is doing this to deliver his people ultimately through a greater deliverer, and that's not Noah. Noah doesn't bring the rest that his name kind of promised. His name means Noah from Genesis chapter 5. Um, he was, he's not the ultimate deliverer. It's someone else. Right. And so the flood is, is just as much a demonstration of God's justice as it is his mercy and deliverance. And maybe we can even say that, that through his justice, we see his mercy and his deliverance even more so. The same water that brought death and judgment to mankind also cleansed the earth and saved and rescued Noah and his family. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, Peter's talking about what God did through the flood, and it says, "...who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water." Corresponding to that baptism now saves you. So a lot of times we look at the flood as just a judgment, and it certainly is a judgment, but it's even more than that. It's actually salvation. Noah and his family were saved. That's what Peter is emphasizing here. Noah was saved through the water, and consequently us too, we are saved through water. And and so I think we see here God being presented as a perfect judge and deliverer. So we need to trust in God's judgment and seek him for, for deliverance. And I think that brings us to our final step in Bible study, application. What do we need to take from this today? How does this apply to us today? And just again, as a reminder for our audience, it may not be that you go through Genesis 6 through 9 all the way from observation to application in one sitting. And we're kind of moving very quickly as a review, kind of as a kind of a refresh, a restart and getting back into our program. But don't always feel like you have to jump to, I have to make sure I have application by the end of today. Make sure you do good observation and interpretation to lead to that. But as we do want to conclude with that, so what, or with that application, what does this mean for our lives? What does this mean for us as we look at the story of the flood? We turn to a passage actually outside of the flood in 2 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to pick up in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3 through verse 7. Peter writes and says, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. By means of these, the world that existed was deluged with water and perished. By the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Something we need to take away from Genesis 6 through 9 is the reality of that story and seeing the reality of what we learn about God and what we learn about Noah and just the fact that judgment came upon the world in Noah's day. And the Bible talks about a judgment that is coming at a time in the future as well. It may be in our day. It may be time even beyond that. The patience of God is not revealed to us for how long it's going to be. There will come a time when that patience runs out and the judgment does come, not necessarily in the form of water this time. It's described as maybe being as fire there in verse 6 and verse 7, 
But judgment is coming, so we need to be prepared for that judgment. So how do we prepare ourselves for that is a great question to consider. So as we leave you with a challenge today, we're thinking about how can we take this into practical terms and translate this into concrete ways we can serve God today. We want you to build something, but not what Noah built, because that's not going to help you very much. Don't build an ark. But in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 11, it says, kind of going back to this idea of a judgment is coming, the day of the Lord is coming. In verse 11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? So we want you to build today toward that holy conduct and godliness. That's what Peter is saying we need to do to prepare for this judgment of fire that's going to come. Do something today that will drive a nail in or shape a board in your character as you prepare for eternity. What is that for you? Maybe it's serving someone. Maybe it's kind of refocusing your priorities. Maybe it's spending more time in prayer, getting back to Bible study. Whatever it is, do that today because a day is coming when it will be too late to prepare. A day of reckoning will come, and are we ready for that day today? Thank you for tuning into Working with the Word today. I've said this once before at the end of episode 71, but Lord willing, we will be back in the book of John, continuing to look at Jesus' private discourse with his disciples, focusing on John 16. Until then, if there are questions, topics, books of the Bible, or difficult passages you'd like for us to cover in future episodes of Working with the Word, you can find and reach out to us on Facebook at Working with the Word, on Instagram at workingwiththeword.podcast, or send us an email to workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. So until next time, may you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen.